G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Taking things a little deeper in these next few minutes as we explore the sources of some of the most contentious issues being debated in the Western world. Even the increasing number of elites in the West today who've abandoned the faith of their forebears and dismiss all religion as pointless superstition remain heirs of what their Christian forebears brought. And for many of us who might think of Christian faith as somehow being fragile, it's a very pleasant surprise that even the most adamant opponents and enemies of Christian faith have Christianity to thank for the formation of their own values. Well, Joining us from the UK is historian and best-selling author Tom Holland. His most recent release is a book called Dominion. He's found himself of recent times defending claims that he made in his book in a debate with renowned atheist A.C. Grayling that the categories even of some of the popular things you'll hear in the media, homosexuality and heterosexuality, science and the high-profile Me Too campaign each find their origins actually in Christian faith. Tom Holland is joining us. Tom, a special welcome along to 2020. Thanks very much for having me. Tom, you were in the middle of a sometimes heated conversation with the atheist A.C. Grayling when he challenged you to name one thing that Christianity had introduced that did not have a secular source. That opened up a tremendous opportunity for you. Uh, yeah, it did. But it was um, it was a bit like being given a kind of a, a, a penalty kick. Um, you know, you're terrified of, of missing the open goal because, uh, in my opinion, pretty much everything that is um, distinctive about Western civilization essentially derives from Christianity. Uh, and <laughs> I barely knew where to begin. Um, I mean, uh, it, it was quite a challenge. Take us a little bit here into your own journey, because while you are now a defender of Christian faith and passionate about your Christianity, it wasn't always the case in your formative years. You were distracted by a whole lot of things. Just take us in a little bit of your journey as we start to talk about some of these things that Christianity has brought to our society. Well, um, I was uh, brought up a Christian. My mother was, is, um, a, a devout Anglican. So I, I went to church. I, um, unbelievably, considering how bad I sing, I was, I was in the choir. Um, I, I went to Sunday school. And I, I kind of quite enjoyed the Bible. Um, and I particularly enjoyed the more um, kind of brutal bits. I, I enjoyed um, Pharaoh being drowned in the Red Sea and um, people having tent pegs hammered through their skulls. So all that kind of stuff I, I, I enjoyed. But t t to be honest, um, what I really liked were um, things that were, were, were kind of big and fierce and glamorous and predatory. So first of all, dinosaurs. Uh, and then I seamlessly moved on to the Romans. 
Um, and as I was growing up, really, uh, it, it was the kind of the glamour and the, 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 the cruelty and the colour of the great ancient empires that became my obsession. So if you'd asked me whose side was I on, Jesus or Pontius Pilate, I would have been wholly on Pontius Pilate's side because he had the eagles and the purple. Um, and so when in due course I, I came to um, be a historian, my focus was very much on, on the empires of antiquity, Persia, Greece, uh, and particularly Rome. Um, but the, uh, the the process of living inside the minds of particularly the Romans, but you know the Spartans as well, the Assyrians. Um, I, 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 as a child, I'd been able to kind of revel in their 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 kind of cruel glamour. Um, as as an adult, there were aspects that I I began to find increasingly un, unsettling. Um, so when Julius Caesar conquered Gaul, he it said that he he slaughtered a million Gauls and he enslaved a, another million. Um, and far from feeling embarrassed about this, um, the amount of, of 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 loot, of slaves, of casualties that he'd inflicted on Gaul was when in his triumph when he rode in his chariot through Rome, were paraded as things to be cheered. And um, increasingly, I began to feel that in almost every aspect of Roman civilization, there was a kind of haze separating me from the assumptions that had governed the Roman world. And when I tried to identify the source of that haze, I increasingly came to realize that it was Christianity and that even on the most basic level of the language that I was speaking, so words like religion or secular or, or as you mentioned, homosexuality, that all of these did not all of these had a distinctive connotation that arose from the 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 evolution of Christian history, and that you know I talk, was talking about Caesar conquering Gaul to talk about the Romans, for instance, having religion or having a concept of something called homosexuality would have been as wrong as saying that Julius Caesar conquered France. You kind of know what I was talking about, but 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 the anachronism is very clear and and it 's in that sense that I think that um, Christianity has been so transformative, has, has, has so completely, if you like, become the water in which we as goldfish swim, that we, we tend not even to be aware of it. What I can hear you reflect there is your own enlightening idea that somehow or other I don't behave the way those Greeks and Romans did. Why do I behave differently? And when you start to talk about civilization and the way that we've developed since those times, is it Christianity that we credit for not being so bloodthirsty as those early civilizations? Well, Christians have done terrible things. Um, I mean, uh, uh, of course, Christians have, have committed terrible crimes. But I think that the difference is, firstly, that, that when we call them crimes, we are, we are judging them by Christian standards. And so, you know, the most anti-Christian atheist listing the, the Crusades or the Inquisition or all the things that, that, that Christians have done that, 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 that are condemned today, the standards by which those things that Christians did are themselves Christian. And, and that's the, the moral framework in which pretty much everyone is, is operating. Um, but, and, and, and the further implication of that in turn is that when, when um, Christians 
you know, from Spain in the, in the 15th and 16th century, traveled to um, the, the New World and um, did terrible things there, uh, brought almost kind of genocidal scale of conquest. There were people, Christians, who stood up and condemned what was happening in, in, in Christian terms. The, the notion of human rights was something that had been developed by the church over the course of the Middle Ages. Um, and there were Dominicans and Franciscans who were standing up and saying that, that the, the natives of uh, America, the Indians, had rights as much as, as Christians did. And this language would have meant nothing to, you know, if the Romans had made it to Mexico um, and, and, and conquered them, there would have been no one standing up and talking in those terms. So, or likewise, when when um, when the English go to um, the New World, to to the Caribbean and to, uh, to to North America, and they start importing slaves from Africa, ultimately, it's the sense in which um, an entire race are being turned into slaves, the kind of the, the racialization of slavery, that starts to prompt uh, a profound sense of anxiety in um, uh, the radical Protestants to begin with, and then across the, 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 the board of British society. And again, the reason for that is that the fundamental teaching of Christianity is that there is no Jew or Greek, so therefore there is no black or white. All human beings are created equally in the image of God. This, again, is an understanding of, of humanity that the Romans, most Romans did not have. And it's that understanding it's a theological understanding that kind of corroded and ultimately brought crashing down the entire institution of of uh, uh, north atlantic slavery so christians have done terrible things but the, the the measure by which we see them as terrible are themselves christian so those modern things that even the opponents of Christianity would argue are not Christian actually are Christian. And one of those glaring examples, the emergence of human rights, which sees every individual as equal in the sight of God, uh, that gives us a ground for human rights. In fact, even in your debate with A.C. Grayling, you even called the humanism that he holds to like a soft Protestantism because it's so similar to Christianity, because it's been shaped that way. Well, you, I mean, look at the name, humanism. <laughs> it's, it's privileging humans. It's, it's, uh, in its very name, it's promoting the notion that humans have a distinctive value. Um, but if you don't believe in God and if you don't believe in the kind of the, 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 the theological um, superstructure of Christianity, why would you think that humans have a special status? Um, uh, in, in, in Dominion, my book, I, I quote Himmler, who, say, who says, uh, you know, humans are nothing special. They're just another species like any other. Uh, and we know <laughs> where Himmler... Himmler kind of understands the implications of that. He understands what that means. If humans have no particular value, then you can do all kinds of terrible things uh, without offense to your own conscience. Um, but I think that the, the idea that humans have a special status, particularly in, in the kind of the, you know, the, 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 the pitiless glare of, uh, of, of, of Darwinian science, is something that um, 
doesn't seem to me a given at all unless you have a, a kind of certain theological understanding of, of humanity's um, what humanity is about. And so in that sense, it seems to me that, that humanism is entirely uh, derivative of, of Christianity, and yes, specifically of Protestantism. So when the atheist or the humanist is attacking Christianity, it's not that hard to be able to identify contradiction, even hypocrisy in the humanist argument, because it's on these grounds that Christianity has brought us to an understanding of these things like human rights. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments, and I hope you can stay with us. Our special guest is Tom Holland. His latest book is called Dominion. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. We're talking with historian and best-selling author Tom Holland. His most recent release is a book called Dominion. Of recent times, he found himself in a debate with the renowned atheist A.C. Grayling, and we discovered that there are a whole lot of terminologies that we use in everyday conversation, even the most controversial things we might talk about, like homosexuality or heterosexuality, science and the high-profile Me Too campaign all find their origins in Christian faith. Tom, how do we actually connect those things of today to our Christian faith? Well, the assumption might be that um, there is something called human nature which has been constant um, over time and, and, and across the planet. And you might think that um, our understanding of uh, an experience of um, sexual desire would be perhaps the most fundamental example of that. But the reality is that um, our, our, as societies, our understanding of, of, of sexuality and the relationship between men and women is highly contingent and something that um, uh, has varied um, across, the, across the centuries and across the globe. And our understanding in, in, in the West, so in, in, in Britain and Australia and you know, the Western world generally, again, has been so profoundly shaped by Christianity that perhaps we don't realize it. And to, to understand how and why we think the way we do about sexuality, the, the, the great primal origin of our way of thinking of this is the figure of Paul. And Paul recently has had a bad reputation as um, uh, you know the Romans are imagined as all having orgies and fun and, and enjoying themselves and then Paul turns up wagging his finger and telling them they can't have fun and you know it's a shower of cold water um, which is a <laughs> travesty of, of, um, of what happened because to understand um, why Paul is, is such a radical and transformative figure you need to understand um, what the Romans thought and, uh, uh, about sexuality. And for the Romans, the great division was not between men and women. That, that is something that we get via, via Paul and, and, and the Christians from um, Hebrew scripture, the idea that God created men and, and, and women separate. Um, that's something Paul absolutely takes for granted, but it's not something that was fundamental to the Romans. To the Romans, what was fundamental was, do you have power or do you not? And the person who has power is the free male Roman citizen, and those who do not have power are basically everyone else. And a free Roman citizen essentially has the right to do what he likes sexually to um, anyone who is subordinate to him. 
uh, and, and of course, most obviously, his, his slaves. Uh, he, he can use them, male or female, any way that he wants. And it's hard to overemphasize how radically subversive of this assumption Paul's teachings are. So if we imagine Paul sending uh, his, his letters to, to the Romans uh, or, or to the churches in Corinth, which was also a Roman city, and presumably these letters would have gone to a Christian head of the household. And what Paul is telling this Christian head of the household is that he, as, as, a, as a man, is created in the image of Christ. And that his relationship with, with women has to be governed by the notion, by, by, by parallel of, of Christ's relationship with his church. So the implication of that is that the, the male Christian householder cannot simply uh, sexually abuse his scullery maid or his page boy any way that he wants. And in fact, that he has to commit to a lifelong relationship to one woman in the form of marriage. Now, that is, by the standards of the age, an incredibly odd thing to demand. Um, the, a, a Jewish man could have numerous wives. A, a Roman man could only have one wife, but he could kind of you know, divorce her at the drop of a hat. Um, Paul is, is, is taking the, the idea of um, a lifelong matrimony, and he is making something incredibly radical of it. And he is effectively giving to, to women who are cast in the role of the church an astonishing dignity by the standard of the age, because it's not just um, Roman matrons who are being given this dignity, it's also the scullery maids, it's the uh, prostitutes in the bars, it's the um, girls who've been abandoned on rubbish dumps and have been brought up to be institutionally abused. All these women are being given a status, being told your body is something sacrosanct, it is something holy. Uh, men should not, you know, however powerful they are, should not have the right to abuse you. And so this is an understanding of sexuality that over the course of the centuries that follows the lifetime of Paul, the, the, the church begins to force on the very different sexual mores of the Roman world in which it is growing. And over the course of, of, of Christian history, this is something that the church goes to great efforts, essentially to kind of reconfigure the wiring of people's sexual assumptions. And by the time you get to the Middle Ages, and the, uh, the, the, the church obviously has a kind of immense... Um, moral and indeed even political authority over the whole of, of, of Western Europe, what, they, what, what, what the church does is to push this understanding even further by deliberately smashing the right of patriarchs to determine who their sons and daughters should marry. So it's an assumption in most societies that you may want to keep things within the family, that you may want to marry cousins off to cousins, second cousins off to second cousins. The church says, forbids this. It says that this is incest. Uh, and the reason it does this is that it assumes that if Christ chooses his church, then the man must choose the woman. The woman must choose the man. It must be freely given. So, uh, you know, people find this an astonishing idea. But essentially what the, the church is the midwife of the idea of romantic love. And the classic illustration of that is, is Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet, where um, Capulet wants to marry his daughter Juliet off to, to her cousin, and Juliet wants to marry someone completely different. And who is it who marries Romeo and Juliet? It's the friar. Um, and Romeo and Juliet is 
being written by a Protestant in a Protestant city, but it shows that it, the Reformation hasn't altered that understanding. And indeed, the, the, the very name Puritan, Puritan has a kind of very negative connotation. But that idea of purity within the word, the notion of sexual purity is very important. Um, Puritans within marriage are encouraged to have a kind of fulfilling uh, sexual relationship. Outside the marriage, Puritan men are not supposed to go around jumping their maids and things. Um, and basically, for for centuries and centuries, that was the fundamental understanding of um, Anglophone civilization. So in America, in Australia, in 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 Britain, that that uh, men should exercise a degree of sexual continence. Um, and the depth of that, the the, the way in which um, people in Western society tend still to take that for granted, I think is manifest in the, in, in, in the Me Too movement because what no one pretty much said when the, the uh, Harvey Weinstein scandal broke was, well, what's wrong with a powerful man sexually abusing his inferiors? And yet that is what a, you know, a Roman would have taken for granted, Weinstein's right to do that as a powerful man. Um, so and we talk about power shifts and the way that power is not so much the important factor when you have a Christian-style marriage because matrimony between a man and a woman is something that has given protection for a family. But if you move away from that, as we've seen of recent times, uh, same-sex marriage, uh, the different ways that we're now looking at those different human relationships, women being the possible losers in all of that. Uh, but what you're saying is the Me Too movement actually has a Christianity grounding because women are demanding that men take the control of themselves yes. that Christianity yes. demands that they take. Yes, effectively. Uh, and, and so there's, there's kind of a, a kind of Moebius strip of paradox here. Because if you think of the women's marches that were, that, that, um, were launched uh, as part of the Me Too movement after Trump's inauguration, um, the most striking costume that, that the, many of the protesters wore were the red robes and white bonnets of handmaids from Margaret Atwood's novel, uh, The Handmaid's Tale, which had been turned into a, a TV drama. Uh, and this was a kind of dystopian portrait of, of a theocracy in New England. And it was kind of obviously drawing on um, memories of, uh, of of the Puritans in in New England in the, in the 17th century, and yet <laughs> this parody of Puritan America was itself demanding that America become more Puritan, and it kind of perfectly exemplifies the um, the kind of the, the peculiar state that we're in, where people who may well define themselves as being opposed to Christianity are nevertheless drawing on Christian morals and assumptions to make their protests. Tom, when people pick up your book, they're going to get a lot more of what we've been talking about today. And you have a wonderful way of being able to take us down a rabbit hole or two to bring us back to an understanding. The idea that Christianity is the single most transformative development in Western history, is that where you are leading your readers? Completely, and I would go further than that. I'd say that, 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 that in, in terms of frameworks for understanding uh, what humanity's role is in the cosmos, um, I would say that it's the most influential um, framework for doing that, that humanity is ever devised. It's not just in the West. It's, um, 
it's it's had a transformative effect on on the entire world. Um, and I think that it's precisely the fact that uh, so many of its assumptions have kind of uh, are, are like dust fragments in the air that you you breathe in and you don't even realize it. Um, that, that actually makes it has made it so transformative. The fact that Christianity is, and let's say, under attack, and those things that we've come to know in Western society as being foundations are cracking and being displaced by other humanist ideas. How do you think of the future if there's not some way in which we can preserve some of these foundations that have given to us uh, the good things in our civilization? Well, I, I, I think, first of all, that, that we shouldn't be um, Western-centric, if, if that's a word. Um, the, 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 the kind of the power of Christianity, which swept like in a kind of great blaze of Pentecostal fire um, a, a, across Europe in the early Middle Ages and then across America in the early modern period, that Pentecostal fire continues to sweep um, the uh, the. The, the conversion of huge numbers of people in Africa over the second half of the, the 20th century and into this century is um, a kind of a, a, an astonishing transformation. And the same process is, is happening in, in uh, vast reaches of Asia as well. So I, I, I think that Christianity remains, as it has ever done, um, a faith that is able to spread like, um, dare I say in the Australian context, like wildfire. Um, but... In the West, you're right that confessional Christianity is, is, is clearly on decline. But I think the reason that it's in decline is that um, what now may seem to be kind of dominant in the, the, um, uh, the, the commanding heights of, of, of our respective cultures um, is in itself another churning of the Christian revolution because if you think back to the Reformation, the Reformation was all about um, overturning what the Reformers saw as idolatry, banishing superstition, bringing the people who had walked in darkness into light. And again, back in um, the early centuries of Christianity, that is, that is what Christians saw themselves as doing, banish, overthrowing the idols of, 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 of Roman worship, um, again, banishing superstition, bringing people into light. And of course, all these ideas ultimately go back beyond Christianity itself to the age of the Hebrew prophets. This is all the language of Isaiah and, 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 uh, and the prophets. So the language of the Enlightenment is absolutely a part of that the very word enlightenment is drawing on that idea that people are in darkness and have to be brought into light and that the, the, the obsession with overthrowing idols with 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 banishing superstition again is an entirely christian one and so in that sense the the values the assumptions of um of, of humanists secularists progressives whatever you want to, to call them are deeply deeply christian i suppose the issue is um that the, the Christianity has a kind of uh, it, we, at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about how it, 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 you know, its, its ideas are deeply rooted in, in theology. It's deeply rooted in the conviction that someone who suffered the death of uh, the terrible death of a slave 
triumphed over his tormentors, um, that death was conquered, that uh, this blaze of light is the blaze of something that transcends the power of humans to understand it. Now, that, those are very powerful ideas that today have essentially been parked in a siding. And the question for Western societies, I think, has to be, can you have the morality, the Christian morality, the Christian ideals, without that kind of um, molten core that historically has animated them and given them life? And I think the jury is very much out on that question. Well, Tom, you are leading the way, because as you illustrate, when you're under pressure, uh, then you need to come up with the goods to argue the points that you're making. And you are arguing those very well in your latest book called Dominion. Historian and best-selling author Tom Holland. And if you want to get a hold of Dominion, simply go on to Am- Am- Simply go on to Amazon and uh, you'll be able to find a whole lot of books that Tom has written. But the one we're talking about today is called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. And you can also see the debate that he had with the atheist, A.C. Grayling. Uh, That's been released by the BBC and you can actually get a copy of that or you can download a copy of that on YouTube. And there's a website you can go to, t-holland.org, to connect with Tom Holland. Tom, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us today, here on 2020. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.